words of grace. And so these last words of the Lord's Prayer are appropriate ending, not just to this prayer, but to every prayer. And that is why, as you will see, some chants also included it, and it is part of some of the verses or some of the later manuscripts. It's understandable that they wanted to include these words. For isn't it true that we usually first pray about what we need and about what concerns us in our own lives before we think about pleasing God? That is because in our personal lives, we are constantly concerned about whether or not we get what we need and whether or not we receive some of the glory and the praise. That's the kind of people we are. We like attention. And we want others to recognize our contributions. We want people to know about our needs and about our interests. And that attitude we also bring to our prayers. But God wants us to praise him with every breath and with every word. And that is why he wants us about him first. And that's also what you find in the Psalms. The psalmist gives some very good examples of how to praise our Heavenly Father. He sang, for example, in Romans 8 and Psalm 27, clap your hands and shout, let your praise ring out. And later on after the sermon, you will think of Psalm 106, oh, thank the Lord, bring him your praise, extol his goodness all your days. Think of the Psalms, we usually think of them as songs. Indeed, that's what they are. They're songs, songs of praise. All of them are meant to be sung. That's also why we have them put to music. But they are not just songs of praise, they are also prayers. And many of the Psalms, especially Psalms 145 through 150, end in similar ways you will find in the doxology of the Lord's Prayer. Throughout the scriptures, you will find words similar to the conclusion to the doxology of the Lord's Prayer as well. For example, in 1 Chronicles 29, verse 11, we read the words, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. And in the New Testament, Paul offers up the following prayer in 2 Timothy 4, verse 18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And the Apostle John uses similar words in Revelation 1, verse 6, where he says, To him be the glory and power forever and Amen, forever and ever, amen. Also, the Lord Jesus Christ used the same expression when he prayed to his heavenly Father. For in his high priestly prayer found in John 17, he prays, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. That's what he says in the prayer to his heavenly Father. It is how every creature in heaven and on earth will praise God at the end of the age as well. In 
the words of Revelation 5, verse 13, they will sing to him who sits on the throne, to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And so the doxology of the Lord's Prayer is very old and is extensively used throughout the scriptures. And it was also extensively used by the Christians in the first century after Christ and beyond. Indeed, in the Didache, which is the teaching of the Twelve Apostles, as it was known as, which was a document written only some 50 or 60 years before the last Bible book was written, the doxology, as the King James Version has it, was also included. But it appears that in practice that doxology was kept separate in the way that it was recited. So when the Lord's Prayer was recited by the early church, the people would recite all the petitions of that prayer in unison. That is to say, they would say the words out loud together with the minister. But that's not what they did with the doxology. Those last words would be recited by the minister alone, except for the last word, Amen which the whole congregation would then also repeat. But that still leaves us with the question as to why it was left out in the modern translations. Well, as I said, it was left out because some of the old manuscripts do not include it. The translators of the modern Bible versions concluded that since the most important manuscripts do not include that doxology, it is really also somewhat of a rough repetition of the first part of the Lord's Prayer. But in the final analysis, it doesn't matter that much. As we saw, the doxology is found throughout Scripture, and it is a very fitting end to the Lord's Prayer. For praise belongs to every prayer. God commands us to praise Him. It is through praise that we express our love for God. Isn't that what we do in human relationships as well? When you love your wife, then you praised her. And the same thing with your children and your grandchildren. You praised them. How much more with God? For he is the wonderful creator. And he is the one that gives us everything that we need for body and soul. And so we praise him for who he is and for what he does. Those who do not know what it is to love the Lord can understand that we go to him in prayer just to ask for things. Indeed, in times of need, even unbelievers can pray, don't they? But they do not know what it is to praise God in order to praise Him. They do not know to praise Him, especially in times when things are not going well. Only true believers, those who love the Lord their God, and who know what who He is and what He is capable of and what He has done and will do, will praise God with their lips, even when times are rough. For they know that they have a Father in heaven who deeply cares for them 
want us to do that. Because we have to acknowledge Him. And we have to acknowledge that He rules. And that's what the Lord Jesus already taught at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. He rules. It's a good thing that this is now repeated here in this Adam doxology. This serves as a reminder. As a reminder. But let me pray for yours word, by speaking. He 
word hit that power and God showed his power in so many ways he shows that in the way that he fights for his people for his anointed for you for me he goes before them in battle causing the believers to pray as did Jehoshaphat king of Judah he caught up his strength to sing oh Lord God of our fathers are you the God who is in heaven, you rule over all the kingdom of the nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. Do you believe that? Do you? Is that also your prayer congregation? God is more powerful than anything. He's more powerful than Satan. Indeed, Satan Satan is completely in God's power. Don't you ever doubt that? And do you know how God showed his power? Well, he showed his power, especially in his work of salvation. Listen to what Paul says in the Ephesians. He says in chapter 1, verse 19 and following, that God wants us to know his incomparably great power for us who believe. Then he says further, that power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. resurrection of his son and his resurrection from the dead. Because of the resurrection, you may have life. You may have power over Satan. Through faith, God uses his might and power in order to save us from sin and in order to save us from the power of sometimes despair because of the hold the apparent hold that Satan has on you do you want to give up at times well remember God is the power to give you life and how does he show his power and how does he share it he shows his power as I said a moment ago through his word so brothers and sisters, boys and girls, listen to his word. Apply it. Be instructed by it. Read it. Pick it up. Meditate on God's word. And God's word is not just administered here from this pulpit, but also to you through your friends, through your parents, through your children. And through the office bearers in the church. Time and again, we have to remember that God is the Almighty One, the Powerful One. Through His Son, He has overcome Satan. Because of the Lord Jesus Christ, Satan no longer has any hold on you. So even when you do fall into 
but uh, we give socks and towels and that's because of the power of the resurrection for the Lord Jesus Christ nailed our sins to the cross with him he died for them and he is able to do so because he has all the power and he is willing to do that as well speak about his honor. The Hebrew language, the language of the Old Testament, the word for glory, kabod, literally meant weightiness. God's name carries weight. In other words, it is a name to be reprehended. To him belongs the glory. And here you find the most compelling reason our Father in heaven. The name of God should receive all the glory forever. Reputation is at stake. You know what else that means? You know what you are praying when you say that the glory belongs to God alone? It means that you are willing to deny those things in our prayer which do not honor his name. In other words, it means that you ask, Father in heaven, do not give me what I so earnestly desire, but only that which enhances your great reputation. It means to pray, lead me in my sorrow and apparent need rather than your name be dishonored in any way. We want to bring glory to his name in everything. You see, brothers and sisters, even during times of distress, we are to bring glory to the name of God. It's not necessarily in our best interest that we find a new bitter reason for our grief and agony. For in our pain and sorrow, we are drawn closer to God. Shall we get cured? Knows immediately where to go for comfort, doesn't he? What does a little cure? What does a little child do when it gets hurt? Well, it goes to its mother. The child of God who is in pain also knows where to go. He goes to his Father in heaven. And he is all-powerful. And he is the perfect God knows what we need. That's it. Then we know ourselves. As poor Jesus self-said in Matthew 6. And that is why we also depend on his sure promises. God fulfills his promises into eternity. Together we are waiting for the return of God the Son on the day of judgment. And then we will see as it says in Matthew 24 verse 30. The Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. At that time, you will see all of God's promises fulfilled. And at that time, you will see all our prayers fulfilled as well. 
probably no other word as universally used as that little word. Um, but that's been totally taken over in all modern languages and in the ancient languages as well. It's the Hebrew word used in both of the prayer or the sermon. The word amen indicates something which is reliable, which is firm, which is sure. And yet often we treat little words as if it has totally different meaning. For some, the word amen is an indication to wake up from our sleep or our daydream so we can go home and have a cup of coffee. The word to them spells relief. The Catechism, however, teaches us that this word is not used to signal the end of a sermon or a prayer. No. It's a confession. It's a confession of faith. The word uses the word amen in two different ways. In the first place, it is an expression of affirmation. In other words, when you say the word amen, or when it is said on your behalf within the covenant community, you are stating that you truly believe the promises and the demands of the covenant. That's your confession. That's what we see, for example, in Deuteronomy 27. There Moses prescribed how the Levites should read the law and how the people should respond. That there, cursed is the man who dishonored his father or his mother. Then all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the man who wounds his neighbor's donkey strong. Then all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the man who leads the blind astray on the road. Then all the people shall say, Amen. Etc., etc. God has spoken, and the people affirm their assent and their obedience with the word, Amen. That's what's going to happen. It's sure. That's their confession. And so it's also a wonderful custom that we have here in the Emmanuel Church that the people say Amen after the sermon and after God's greeting and after the benediction. Amen is also used in order to introduce a solemn statement. Christ used that word in that way in many occasions. When the Lord Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 5, I tell you the truth, then in actual fact he says, I say to you, Amen. That's how it says in language. Christ speaks. We may be sure that his word is sure and utterly reliable. That is also what Paul affirms in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20, where he writes, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. To the glory of God. And Jesus Christ himself is called the amen in Revelation 3, verse 14. It says there, these are the words of amen. The faithful as the witness, the ruler of God's creation. Lord Jesus Christ is our Amen. And in the third place, Amen is used as a closing statement of praise, as is the case in the Lord's Prayer, and as is the case with the way that we end our prayers. 
Amen.